Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. As we all know, the pandemic has taken a toll on the healthcare workforce, and a recent national poll underscored that reality by reporting that nearly 30% of nurses, doctors, and allied professionals might leave the field. This makes programs to expand the healthcare workforce more important than ever, and also programs that upskill current health workers to both address gaps and help with retention. Creating career pathways for the healthcare workforce is the focus of our guest, Daniel Bustillo, Executive Director of the Healthcare Career Advancement Program, HCAP, a national organization of SEIU unions and healthcare employers that promote innovation and quality in healthcare career education and equity in the healthcare workforce. He also serves with me on the board of the National Skills Coalition. Thanks so much for joining us today, Daniel. Thank you, Vaughn. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I would love for you to start by adding to that very brief description of your national organization, HCAP. Sure. Happy to do so, Vaughn. Um, as you mentioned, HCAP, we are a national labor management organization that promotes innovation and quality in healthcare career education. And our work is really focused at the intersection of skills attainment racial and gender equity and job quality. Um, We have a series of partnerships that include workforce intermediaries, what we call training funds or training partnerships uh, that span 16 states plus DC, uh, overall encompassing about 550,000 covered healthcare workers at over a thousand participating employers, uh, training tens of thousands of healthcare workers a year on a variety of uh, either upskilling, reskilling initiatives, career pathway progressions, a variety of different things. Um, we also have a couple of different initiatives at HCAP that we have launched over the past few years. One related to specifically to register apprenticeships. We lead the work of the National Center for Healthcare Apprenticeships, which as part of that work, we have worked with a variety of different stakeholders and states and partners over the country. And we have a, an exciting new initiative that I hope we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about. We just launched a, a new center for advancing racial equity and job quality and long-term care as well. Wonderful. So if HCAP is covering 16 states and D.C., you probably have a good feel for what's going on in the healthcare workforce. So what's your reaction to the poll number I cited at the beginning that 30% of health workers might leave the profession? Uh, What are you hearing about the wellness and retention of this important workforce? Yes, I mean, those are really sobering figures, right, Bon? When you think about sort of what we've been through with the pandemic over the past year and a half and thinking about the essential role that caregivers have really played in making certain that we uh, people are provided with the best possible care under really difficult circumstances. So, I mean, sadly, I can say I'm not surprised to hear those figures. We do work across all sectors of healthcare as well. So we have partnerships in the acute care with um, ambulatory care, skilled nursing facilities, as well as in home care. So, you know, clearly we've been aware of some of the difficulties within healthcare and some of the difficulties faced by the healthcare workforce in particular, which, if anything, have just been severely exacerbated with what's gone on during the pandemic, where, you know, healthcare workers have rightly been lauded as heroes during the pandemic. 
but frequently faced with really challenging situations and oftentimes oftentimes treated uh, a, a differently than heroes as well. So I, as I said, I am not surprised to hear those figures. I mean, I think I'm really concerned about the longer term implications from both a physical and a mental health perspective for healthcare workers. And we have certainly, certainly been hearing about individuals leaving the profession and the need for new individuals to come into the profession as well. So I think 30% is a sobering figure, but my concern is that it may end up being greater than that. Oh my, that's really troublesome. Hopefully not. <laughs> that will be really troublesome if it's greater than than thirty uh, percent. So, Daniel, you mentioned a bit about HCAP's role in innovating the healthcare workforce development world. What are the biggest changes that you're seeking to make? What are the problems you're trying to solve, and and how is HCAP going about it? That's a big question, right? I do certainly appreciate it. And I think in uh, in fully answering this question, I do need to like to take just a little bit of a step back. I really think we need to take into consideration the the multiple interlocking mechanisms and ecosystems that comprise not only the healthcare workforce development system, but the healthcare delivery system. But I'll focus on just a few. Uh, first, I would say I think that just writ large, I think that there is a level of introspection that is needed from a workforce development perspective within the field of workforce development itself, healthcare or otherwise, which I believe really needs to reckon on a much deeper level with some of the dominant principles and narratives that have governed the field for some times. Um, and I would contend that sometimes I've perpetuated some misconceptions uh, unsupported by evidence related to things such as individual or group deficits, skills gaps, et cetera. So that's one, I think, just contextually. Second, the healthcare industry itself, in addition to being the largest industry for employment in this nation with bls current bls projections indicating that six of the 10 fastest growing occupations over the next decade are healthcare related is is as you know von is a highly regulated and credentialed industry right oftentimes with different training requirements for the same occupation across different states which is a particular issue that we face when we talk about sort of working across geographies and across states as well um, so to meet this demand, healthcare workforce development, I think, also needs to grapple with multiple issues. And amongst these are things such as reimagining or reconfiguring of ecosystems, models, and partnerships to facilitate the delivery of critically needed and more nimble and responsive skills attainment and reskilling initiatives for entry into the field. Um, progression for incumbent workers who may already have deep experience in the field. And when you heard me talk about our partnerships initially up front, those partnerships primarily serve incumbent workers um, and quality care delivery as well, because frankly, that's what we're all in this business for as well. I think also educational provider responsiveness, capacity, um, some of the in certain locations, some of the predatory practice of some for profit entities. And there's much, much more beyond the scope of what we have time to discuss today. Uh, in addition to everything I just mentioned in healthcare, I think if we're truly invested in reimagining systems for better outcomes, there are specific systemic issues related to the racialized and gendered role of caregiving in our society. And by that, I mean, in healthcare, we do have this severe overrepresentation of primarily black and brown workers in the lower wage entry level occupations and an underrepresentation of those same workers as we move up the occupational ladder. Uh, the quality of jobs, and I think also the difficulty accessing options that facilitate career mobility beyond the first rung or two. I think these are all issues that we have to account for. So at HCAP at the national level, I mean, we attempt, we're really an association. So we work with partners around the country. Uh, we attempt to deal with these issues through participatory policy and programmatic initiatives 
that are really situated, as I said initially, at the intersection of skills attainment, racial and gender equity, and job quality. These initiatives, they all take a sectoral supply and demand side approach that, uh, as a differentiator, I think equally centers the needs of workers and directly takes into account the voice of workers and adult learners as well. Really, obviously, important and critical components who too often have, uh, I think, limited agency are not part of the development process, even though if you think about them as end users, they oftentimes have a great deal of untapped experience and expertise. So we work across all sectors of healthcare, as I stated, to really create strong ecosystems and partnerships that influence policy change, provide quality outcomes, but with intensive services and supports that we all know help facilitate adult learner success beyond just access to funding, which is important, but there is a variety of other uh, parts of the equation that are equally important in facilitating adult learner success. Well, the things that you're saying is just music to my ears, because as you know, we really appreciate meeting people where they are in terms of bringing them into this workforce. Um, so Daniel, 65% of the healthcare workforce are allied health roles, which workforce development model works really well in allied health. I'd love your perspective because you get to see them across the board. I mean, I think that frankly, when you think about uh, what's required as a healthcare provider as well, there's an entire set of, of potential options that contained under the rubric of work-based learning models that I think clearly, you know, have a, a great deal of efficacy within allied health, right? Um, earn and learn models as well. Um, models, I think, with robust mentorship components or peer-to-peer -peer components, I think, are particularly important when you think about the transition to practice and, the, and caregiving responsibilities. Um, I think HCAP and our partners, you know, we have a, a long history also of supporting competency-based education. In addition, our network partners across the country have long track records and have had excellent success with models that are informed by and take into account the needs of working adult learners contained along the continuum we just talked about that really do provide sort of the necessary intensive wraparound services and supports that may be localized to a variety of languages. Because if we think about the healthcare workers that we serve, we are talking about many immigrants as well, uh, many different languages, depending upon geographic location, et cetera, an entire suite of services that's really required to facilitate optimal success, which is what we're all working towards in conjunction with each other. So one of the earn and learn model that is uh, proven around the world is apprenticeship. For those in our audience who may be less familiar with that model, tell us a little bit more about the merits of the apprenticeship model, uh, where there's been traction, because it's relatively new uh, in terms of healthcare adopting this model. Yeah, it certainly is. And certainly is. And I'm happy to talk about this as well. I mean, I think apprenticeships in particular, registered apprenticeships are a model that nationally we've invested in as one mechanism to in some way ameliorate the issues that we've previously talked about, uh, at least in part. So and while we've had good success in embedding the model in certain locations, including, you know, we have almost 20 different competency based occupations registered under our national program. We've supported the registration of thousands of apprentices with partners around the country, whether it's at the state level or at the national level. I think the healthcare sector, uh, as you talked about, even though it does it it has a long history of apprenticeship-like training models, does not have a strong history of uptake for the formal registered apprenticeship model. Uh, so that, that's clearly the case. So I think oftentimes when I have this conversation, I think we need to be realistic about people love to talk about scale and things of that sort. I think related to registered apprenticeship, because we are embedding a new model, I think 
many stakeholders, even if they might have interest initially, their initial reaction when entering this conversation, I think this is less than a little bit over time, there's a concern that there's an implement, you're, in, you're changing my entire sourcing model for talent, right? Or you're talking about doing so. So I think that there's some, you know, clearly some common misconceptions, right? But I think we need to be realistic about what traction, application, and scale mean for registered apprenticeship in healthcare right now. Um, and build upon the good success that folks such as ourselves and others have had over the over the past few years. I mean, all that being said, if you look at the core components of registered apprenticeship models in healthcare, earn and learn, structured on the job learning, mentorship from an experienced healthcare provider that importantly is formerly trained to be a mentor as well. Just because you are good technically in your profession does not mean that you are a good mentor. A robust supportive services, pre-apprenticeship model uh, options and some models. I think it can oftentimes be a, a particularly elegant solution to some of the challenges in our sector for certain occupations as well. And, and Daniel, could you clarify the role of wages in this type of model? Yes, appreciate that. That's actually where I was going to next as well, right? So I think that clearly in a formal registered apprenticeship model, uh, wages, there is a requirement to have one, at least one, you can have more than one, at least one formal wage progression as part of the model. And it is different. It is different than the traditional, what many folks would categorize as sort of the train and pray model of training as well, right? Where you access some training and then it is incumbent upon you as an individual to attempt to find a job. This is a job from the beginning as well, right? So this is a real commitment. This is a job that uh, provides real wages with at least one wage progression built in as well to, to, to the apprentice. So, I mean, I think one of the things, speaking to your point, one of the things that is oftentimes unspoken, but certainly true, is that apprenticeships primarily do the elements we just referenced, certainly function for workers and adult learners, right? Uh, and the evidentiary base, I think, continues to build on better outcomes for investment on the demand side. So we've seen an uptick over the last little while, over the intervening few years. I think since the pandemic, ironically, uh, for certain occupations in certain locations, we have definitely seen an uptick, right? Because we're now five, six years into this national, uh, going back to 2014, so almost seven years now, going back to federal investment in expanding registered apprenticeship into non-traditional sectors like healthcare. Well, I'm curious, can this apprenticeship model be of help to some of the low-wage occupations in healthcare that are so vital, especially the ones that provide care to the home, where the individuals make such low wages that the workforce is somewhat unstable and all of us need more care as our parents age or we, you know, our family members um, have needs? I appreciate that question. We have a pretty robust working with partners in particular locations such as Washington State, New York, a pretty robust uh, registered apprenticeship program for HHAs or advanced HHAs that importantly has a variety of different specializations built into them in terms of separate tracks that are targeted towards disease specific conditions. So dementia as an example, right? Uh, so I think that, you know, we've had good success with that. And I think, you know, speaking to your question more broadly, Vaughn, when you think about, you know, when looking at national occupational projections through 2029, by far the largest number of projected new jobs needed, over 1.1 million is for home health and personal care aids, right? That's more than double the next occupation on the list and five times the next healthcare related occupation. So I think, you know, clearly innovation ideas for how to break this, that cycle are not training related. It's important to acknowledge that necessarily. Training plays an important role, but it's not solely a function of training. Uh, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, this cycle is really 
for, uh, for, for in that particular sector is really caused by uh, history, right? The racialized and gender nature of caregiving. And it's really a direct result of a, a history that's steeped in intentional and exclusionary policy practice, such as exclusion from labor law. Uh, which really does require social policy solutions. So as I'm sure you're aware, you know, there's we have an exciting opportunity right now to shape a historic moment in our nation around the future of home and community based services with caregivers around the country calling on Congress to pass President Biden's care plan, care plan, which would invest multiple hundreds of billions of dollars in the home care workforce. And as I mentioned up front at HCAP, we're really excited about our newly launched Center for Advancing Racial Equity and Job Quality in Long Term Care which will take an intersectional approach that nets training in the broader social policy and narrative change work that is being led by so many advocates around the country to advocate for important improvements for this really critical workforce. I'm looking forward to seeing what results. Uh, thank you for your leadership in this area. We need some definitely some rethinking on the social structures and the human infrastructure that all of us will need in the future. Oh, absolutely. And we all will. You mentioned dementia the training of a home health aide and the connection to apprenticeship is the thought that someone begins work first, right? You're hired into the home with some baseline level of training. And then if the individual that you're caring for has dementia, you would then add on the dementia training. Talk to us more a little bit about that model. So, I mean, it depends on location as well, right? Because there are many differences depending upon states, right? But in a consumer directed care system. So oftentimes you would have a consumer or client that has specific uh, conditions as well. So certainly targeting towards uh, if you are a provider of care, thinking about providing the best possible care to that consumer or client, you would want to be robustly trained in the provision of that care, particularly if you're in someone's home, right? So thinking about, and there are six different potential specializations at the moment, uh, dementia just being one of them. I mentioned that because that is something that is obviously critically important, um, but thinking about providing the necessary competencies to those caregivers for the particular consumers, clients, if it was in a hospital setting, uh, patients, if it's in a nursing home setting, residents that they're working with. And is the curriculum for the six areas of specialization already developed out there, Daniel? So for most of the tracks, yes. And this is not necessarily new. We've been doing this for a number of years now as well. So um, it keeps getting expanded, new models. There's a lot of iteration that takes place as it expands to new locations, depending on the particular needs. But we have a good basis of occupational frameworks in apprenticeship and curricula and things of that sort as well. Terrific. Much work has been done to improve how healthcare is delivered with a lot of emphasis being placed on primary care. How has that influenced HCAP's work and what do you see happening in that trend? Yeah, no, I appreciate this question as well. I mean, I think it's a longstanding conversation. I know it's something that you're uh, right in the midst of in California as well, Vaughn, right? So, and I think we certainly have some leading edge states uh, typically in healthcare as well, so being states like California, Washington, some other locations as well. So, I mean, at the national level, uh, these changes in the site of care delivery, I think have we've been discussing them for some time and have greatly influenced us. Um, that being said, I think it's just important to note when you're talking about working across different locations that, you know, as we disaggregate by geography, there's a great deal of variation in the state of play as relates to this emphasis. Um, as an example, I think there's varying levels of interest in serious investments for certain occupation. So I'll bring up community health worker as one particular example, where in particular states, there is serious, there are serious levels of investment in that as an occupation potentially. 
that is not necessarily the case uh, everywhere, right? Uh, for a variety of reasons, I think, mostly related to a lack of billable services as well, too, right? So I think that that is something that is is certainly important to take into account, too. There's also a very, you know, great variation in standards and training requirements, right? As you know, as we talk about different states, there are different requirements and trainings, oftentimes for uh, the same occupation. So. I would say very similar to some of the work that that you've done. I mean, we've had partners that have had serious programs focused on things such as care coordination, uh, community-based care occupations for some time now. So I really do anticipate this trend continuing, but I just want to point out that uh, speaking to many of the things I talked about earlier, it is really important to take into account that the we, we shouldn't just think about this in a vacuum. Uh, the occupational growth in these areas Oftentimes, in some places, is being accompanied by lower wages as well. Thinking about what you talked about in terms of progression to some of those six-figure jobs or otherwise, um, so just important to have that contextually when you're working in different places while working towards training initiatives and infrastructure. Hmm. Good things to think about. Let's end on a, a personal note. I would love for you to tell us what led you into this field of work and why you wake up every day to do the work that you do. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, in many ways, a bit of happenstance, as I'm sure for many of us, right? So uh, it was never a specific intention of mine to end up in the field of workforce development, but I do have once upon a time, I was a healthcare, long time ago, I was a healthcare worker myself working in a large uh, health system in New York City and have a lot of familial, have long familial, both immediate and extended uh, history in healthcare as well. So, you know, as you know, as we've increasingly heard during the COVID pandemic, caregiving is essential infrastructure in this nation, right? It is essential infrastructure for families. It is essential infrastructure for the nation. And caregivers, as we've talked about, have rightfully been lauded as heroes. But not frequently treated as such historically. So it's often diff it's oftentimes difficult, but really rewarding work, but that happens to be undervalued in our society. Um, you've heard me talk quite frequently about the racialized and gendered nature of caregiving and the occupational segregation issues endemic to the healthcare sector. If we can make change in this sector, which is so important to the livelihoods of so many communities, there could potentially be cascading multiplier effects. And you know, beyond this, I'm personally privileged to be able to, at times, have actual direct interaction with caregivers around the nation, no longer as much as I would like, but I really do cherish and value those opportunities. So for me, the question is really, how can we not envision and do everything we can to work towards a different future than what exists right now? And I wake up every day hoping to utilize whatever platform I may have available to me to play some small role in supporting moving these efforts forward for caregivers. Well, Daniel, I certainly learned a lot today and, and hope that Futura Health can be a part of your multiplier effect. Well, we certainly anticipate that, Vaughn. Thank you very much for being with us today. I'm Vaughn Tone Quinlivan with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm -hmm.